You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Dr. Pedro Castillo in Dallas, Texas, reporting for Room Now as we cover ACR Convergence 2021. I'd like to take a moment to highlight a great session presented today. Uh, it was titled 6S403. It was presented this afternoon covering axial spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis with axial involvement. As presented by Dr. Molto, there's a lot of overlap between these diseases. And while we try to uh, separate them on their phenotypes, oftentimes you'll see that patients with psoriatic arthritis have axial involvement as well. In fact, the data she presented showed that patients with cervical spine involvement, either in the past or currently, we couldn't really tell a big difference or a statistically significant difference between the numbers of patients with axial spondyloarthritis who showed cervical involvement and those with psoriatic arthritis, meaning that when a patient who has psoriatic arthritis has neck pain, it is very possible that those patients have axial involvement. We need to be sure to kind of recognize this because patients with psoriatic arthritis sometimes are not treated with the, the same types of medications that would uh, target axial disease. So if a patient's on a conventional synthetic DMARD and some topicals and their skin disease, enthesitis, dactylitis, and peripheral arthritis is well covered, and they tell you about neck pain or some low back pain, it's important not to overlook these things because perhaps the treatment that we're giving them is helping these other uh, manifestations, but not that of their axial involvement. This presentation was followed by Dr. Diodhar, Atul Diodhar, who presented data about axial spondyloarthritis and psoriatic axial spondyloarthritis and the treatment of those diseases. He talks about how there are plenty of options for axial spondyloarthritis, but when IL-23 inhibitors or IL-12 and 23 inhibitors, ustekinumab, as well as the IL-23 inhibition with rizinkizumab were trialed against axial spondyloarthritis, these were not so effective. However, as we may know already, Gusokizumab was shown to be effective in patients with specifically psoriatic arthritis and axial involvement. These were patients that were selected who had sacroiliitis at some point in, at, in their screening and were uh, measured. They had these measures done where they checked modified BASDI, BASDI, ASDAS, as well as spine pain. And using these measures, we did see some benefit with the IL-23 P19 inhibition with and so this raises an interesting question. Is it because the pathophysiology of axial disease is different than the pathophysiology in axial disease um, in spondyloarthritis with psoriasis versus those patients with only axial spondyloarthritis? Perhaps. What we really need, though, is more studies to basically confirm what we saw there and also specifically imaging studies that would allow us to see objectively uh, if there is a big difference. <clears throat> all in all, I think it's very important study or these, these groups of presentations were very important. And it's important for us to be vigilant, remain vigilant about patients who are being seen for psoriatic arthritis and report some of these other manifestations. If you want more, we have a lot more coverage on ACR 2021 at roomnow.com. Please come and join us. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting for Room Now from Northern Virginia, uh, live from ACR 2021. 
Um, today, I'd like to share with you some of the best abstracts focusing on axial spondylarthritis. Um, of course, there were very interesting abstracts, including one on bimekizumab, which is an IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor, uh, as well as a novel oral uh, multiple cytokine MK2 inhibitor for treatment of ankylosing spondylitis. Um, however, I would like to turn uh, our attention away from cytokine inhibition and actually focus on the gut microbiome today. Uh, there are two pretty interesting abstracts. The first one is abstract 68, which identified gut bacteria causing ankylosing spondylitis uh, through Mendelian uh, randomization studies. And we know there's strong evidence that ankylosing spondylitis is caused by the interaction of the gut mucosal immune system with the gut microbiome. This study compared over 11,000 ankylosing spondylitis cases versus 35,000 control cases using a large-scale GWAS and Mendelian uh, randomization analysis. They found that the bacterium Rumnococcus torx is associated with gene FUT2, uh, influencing the risk of developing uh, ankylosing spondylitis. The next abstract is abstract 62, which characterized a shared gut microbiota signature uh, for spondylarthritis patients and its related uh, diseases, uh, including anterior uveitis and uh, Crohn's disease. Uh, fecal samples were collected from 300 spondylarthritis, uh, Crohn's disease, and anterior uveitis patients. And the uh, microbiota composition was determined by RNA gene sequencing. There was a robust shared unique taxonomic signature found amongst these patients compared to the controls. Uh, furthermore, the axial spondylarthritis patients were uniquely enriched in columella. I think all of these results support a hypothesis that ankylosing spondylitis is a gut microbiome-driven disease. Um, this opens the door and perhaps uh, uh, more room for novel therapeutic approaches targeting the gut microbiome. And perhaps I think it raises the question that perhaps could correcting the underlying dysbiosis as part of ankylosing spondylitis management result in overall clinical improvements. Um, so thanks again for tuning in. Uh, for live coverage of ACR 2021, please go to roomnow.com and feel free to follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to Room Now's coverage of ACR Convergence 2021. My name is Mrinalini Day, and I'm an academic rheumatology trainee based in Liverpool in the UK. Today, I'd like to highlight abstract number 0494, um, which is entitled The Distribution of Social Deprivation, Distance to Care and Disease Burden in Rheumatoid Arthritis um, Patients in the United States. This was presented by Sharon Dowell and colleagues. So there is an increasing body of evidence demonstrating the negative impact of social factors, including employment status, education status, and geographical factors on disease activity in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, this particular study was a US-based study looking at disparity in disease burden and care between different regions in the US. So this involved over 180,000 patients enrolled in the Rheumatoid Arthritis RISE Registry, um, and around three quarters of the cohort were female. Disease activity was found to be higher in Black people and in patients from South regions and those with Medicaid or Medicare coverage, um, which are insurance programs for those with um, a lower income. In the South and West regions, uh, many patients 
um, were more than 200 miles from a care provider. A large proportion of socially deprived, rural, high comorbidity and Medicaid covered RA patients um, were therefore cared for by a relatively small number of rheumatology practices. So this demonstrates a clear need to improve the care of rheumatoid arthritis patients in these socially deprived areas. And whilst this study is very US focused, of course, there are implications for other countries, even those without similar insurance programs and models of healthcare, um, as it is becoming increasingly clear that multiple socioeconomic factors play a critical role in a patient's overall experience and burden of disease. So this abstract 0494 is part of the health disparities in rheumatology abstract session. Um, and if you'd like more content on ACR 21, you can follow me on um, Twitter at Dr. Minnie Day, or you can follow Room Now at Room Now on Twitter, or go to their website for much more content. And um, thank you for watching. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. Please join me at Room Now, and we're going to talk about to clot or not to clot. And this is with respect to rheumatic diseases. So I have with me from Brigham and Women's Harvard, uh, Dr. Jeff Sparks. So Jeff, wonderful to have you in Room Now again. Always good to see you. Can't wait to be in person again. <laughs> Absolutely, that'll come someday. I think next yeah. year. I'm buying I a plane so. ticket. I am. I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm coming. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting. Uh, there's a lot with the oral surveillance, but also mm. knowing that rheumatic diseases um, and, and the whole jacks as a class, I think it's a muddy water area, but to clot or not. And mm. I mean, certainly an interesting abstract at this meeting was looking at um, PMR and GCA in the VA population. And they actually kind of look like a dose response that um, compared to OA, age and sex match populations, large and multi-site, that there was more clotting in GCA, arterial venous, and of course, retinal uh, arterial and venous, than GCA plus PMR and the least amount in PMR, all of which were numerically and statistically higher than OA. So what do you think is going on there? And how does that maybe help us interpret all these other, mm -hmm. like is it the drug, the disease, or both? Well, um... You know, I think, you know, other vasculitides have certainly been shown to have uh, some clotting risk. And it makes sense, you know, you got a blood vessel that's inflamed, it's going to probably have a more of a propensity to have uh, clotting both on the arterial and venous side. Um, you know, the PMR, I think, is novel. Um, and certainly some of those might have some kind of subclinical vasculitis that might explain it. But, you know, we're seeing this across many rheumatic diseases. We're seeing it in RA with high disease state. We're seeing it in patients that are refractory to many medications. We're seeing it in patients that have risk factors for VTE. Um, so it really does seem that systemic inflammation is really turning the uh, tide towards there to have a propensity to clotting. And obviously this is a big deal, particularly if there's agents, medications that are gonna, you know, perhaps put people at even more risk. Um, and those are, that's the time when we're treating it, when there's high disease activity and high systemic inflammation. Um, so I think this is something that uh, is going to be more in the forefront of uh, rheumatologists' minds. Yep. And I think there's many more, diseases. exactly. And, and it was interesting. You're saying maybe there's subclinical things going on in PMR to increase the risk. So there was an abstract as well at this meeting saying that there was more, um, 
arteritis, large vessel, in patients that were supposed to just clinically have PMR, an imaging study. And I know last year at ULAR, we, well, earlier this year at ULAR, we covered something showing that there were a lot of PEs in patients with active Takayasu seen on PET scan, and we weren't sure of the clinical relevance. So yeah, I do think there's a dose response with the disease activity, probably with extensive disease in some of them. And I think we really won't know the answer yet on what is the magnitude of the risk of a certain drug or a certain class of drugs in decreasing clot risk, and in some instances, maybe um, increasing clot risk. So I think, I think the story will unfold right here in room now over the next year or two. Absolutely. Um, like Shakespeare, you can always get more information out of this. Uh, it's really complex. You know, you think about you know, patients with arthritis and their mobility and uh, obesity and diet. And, you know, there's a lot of different mechanisms to go after, uh, you know, reproductive factors and, you know, certainly steroids, uh, medications. So a lot to keep in mind. Um, and then when this happens, it's obviously a big deal for everyone. That's right. So we got to remember Verkow's triangle that it's the, the host um, the immobility or other factors, and then really piling up risk factors. So as you say, if someone's maybe on oral estrogen um, and smokes and has high blood pressure, um, but the biggest risk of clotting, of course, just like the biggest risk of erosions, biggest risk of clotting to clot or not to clot is having a clot before. The biggest yep. risk of joint damage in RA is having joint damage. So I think we have to know that the highest risk factor is they've already proven in their blood vessels they can have the event. Past this prologue to keep it literary. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, if they've had a history of clot, you really got to think hard about minimizing anything you, you can that might have them a propensity to clot more. Great. Well, listen, follow us at Room Now. And we both, Jeff Sparks and myself, both have Twitter accounts. So uh, we will keep you informed on the meeting and other things we find interesting. Thank you. Hello, ACR Convergence 2021. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate, and today I wanted to share with you Room Now's Team PSA Best of for Saturday, November 6, 2021. So the first abstract I'm going to share with you is abstract number 0488 in Emerging Therapies, which looked at brevacidinib, which, as you know, is a TIC2 JAK1 inhibitor that has already had good results in plaque psoriasis and alopecia areata. And this particular abstract looked at um, its efficacy and safety in terms of psoriatic arthritis. So this was a phase 2B placebo-controlled study. There were 218 patients that were enrolled into the study, and they were placed either into placebo or brevacidinib 10 milligrams, brevacidinib 30 milligrams, or brevacidinib 60 milligrams. So at week 16, more patients in the brevacidinib 30 milligrams and 60 milligram arms achieved an ACR 20 versus placebo, and those responses were maintained out to week 52. So more AEs were noted in the treatment arms, of course, versus placebo, but there were no additional safety signals. In fact, there were no MACE or VTE signals in this study period. So this does show that brevacidinib is not only good for the skin, it's good for the joints and the enthesis as well. And overall, the safety profile is what we've come to expect from JAK inhibitors. Our second best of PSA is plenary abstract number 0453. So this was rizukizumab, which as you know, is a humanized immunoglobulin G1 monoclonal antibody that inhibits IL-23 by binding to its P19 subset. 
or pardon me, subunits. So keepsake one and two, which you're familiar with and we've reported on before, those trials looked at rizikizumab versus placebo um, in uh, PSA patients up to week 24. The primary endpoint for both of these studies was an ACR 20 at week 24, and 1,300 patients completed that 24-week assessment and achieved a higher ACR 20 versus the placebo group. No additional safety signals either in this particular plenary session. And then our third of best of abstract is number 0064. So this was a Canadian study by the esteemed Dr. Ocampo et al., which looked at over 3,300 patients who had AS and PSA, or pardon me, and or PSA. In this particular case, the patients either had AS or PSA to determine incidence of uveitis. So we found that 30% of AS patients versus only about 8% of PSA patients had uveitis in the study. And further, flare rates for uveitis were higher in the AS group, about 12% versus 1% in the PSA group. New onset uveitis was also more commonly seen in that AS subset. So the factors that they found increased the risk of uveitis included an elevated ESR and an elevated CRP in the AS group versus being male or having an HLA-B27 in that PSA group. So from Team PSA, these were our top three best of abstracts from ACR Convergence 2021 for Saturday, November 6, 2021. Continue to get more ACR updates from us at roomnow.com. Hi, ACR Convergence 2021. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and I just saw an interesting abstract, abstract number 0907, that I wanted to share with you. So there's a lot of controversy regarding non-radiographic AXFOL. Is it early AS? Does it even exist? Do patients respond to treatments like they do for AS? Do they progress to AS? You name it, we have lots of questions. So this study by Dr. Kieskamp et al. reviewed 79 patients who were non-radiographic AXFA for up to six years to determine radiographic progression to AS. So they operated under the initial dogma that we have that 10% of non-radiographic AXFA patients will, over a two-year period, progress to AS. All 79 patients who were at the baseline for, were non-radiographic AXFA based on pelvic X-ray films were taken at years two, four, and six, and read by two radiologists. And progression was determined based on the modified New York criteria. At baseline, we had 48% male patients, average age of 39, and symptoms started on average six years prior to enrollment into the study. And 71% of these patients were HLA-B27 positive. So at the two-year mark, eight of the patients met modified New York criteria for SI joint progression to AS. At year four, we only had 48 patients who came back for repeat x-rays, but an additional four of those patients were then um, into the modified New York criteria for SI joint progression to AS. And at six years, we had only 24 patients that we could look at, but three of those patients on their films had progressed to um, meet criteria for SI joint progression to AS. So in my recollection, this is the first, if not one of the first studies that actually looks at kind of the long-term follow-up of these patients. And while this is a very small study, it kind of teaches me that this is a potential that we really need to hone in on these patients and we need to treat them aggressively upfront and early. 
We clearly need to better understand if this segment responds to conventional therapies as we believe that they do, and if there are any other further disease components that may lead us to the idea that progression is a possible um, outcome for each individual patient. For more ACR Convergence 2021 coverage, check out roomnow.com. And of course, follow me on Twitter at UpToTate. This is Maral Aramahi reporting from Indianapolis, Indiana for Room Now on ACR Convergence 2021. Don't you wish there was a non-invasive clinical measure to assess a patient with rheumatic diseases risk for cardiovascular disease? Well, Abstract 0276 answers that question by showing the importance of paying attention to pulse pressure. Pulse pressure is a surrogate measure of arterial compliance and blood flow. So as a reminder, pulse pressure is defined as the difference between systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure. Pulse pressure was recently shown to be associated with subclinical cardiovascular disease after adjustment of cardiovascular risks in a population of patients without any rheumatic disease. So how about in rheumatoid arthritis patients? Well, this abstract was a study of 92 patients with rheumatoid arthritis aged 40 to 75 years compared to matched controls without rheumatoid arthritis. RA patients were divided into two subgroups, patients with carotid plaques as detected by carotid ultrasound and those without. The blood pressure was measured in the left arm of patients after 15 minutes of rest. RA patients were shown to have higher pulse pressure than controls. Pulse pressure was the only independent risk factor for subclinical atherosclerosis. This is a practice-changing abstract for me, and I think for most rheumatologists everywhere. We all should be calculating an RA patient's pulse pressure to help stratify their cardiovascular risk further. This is Morala Ramahe reporting for Room Now. Please tune in to roomnow.com for more coverage of ACR Convergence 2021. Hi, this is Bella Mehta from New York reporting for Room Now from New York. Uh, for ACR21 conversions. We have Megan Close with us, uh, who's well known for her work in lupus. And we'd be talking about abstract number 877, uh, talking about hydroxychloroquine levels in type one and type two lupus activities. So welcome. And um, this was an interesting study. Um, why do you measure hydroxychloroquine levels? Wow. So I actually measure hydroxychloroquine levels pretty often these days. Um, primarily, to be honest, for adherence, mm -hmm. um, but also sometimes to um, find really high levels. Um, the reason that we checked hydroxychloroquine in this uh, study was actually because um, we could. We were um, sharing samples uh, with our collaborators at Exigent, and they were willing to do hydroxychloroquine levels, and we really wanted to see them mostly for adherence. I see. And you know, I, I see that a lot of the patients in the study were not adherent, at least. Um, so, and, and the way uh, you categorize the hydroxychloroquine levels were underexposed, subtherapeutic, or therapeutic. Um, how, is that something that is standard? Do you, do you use that this, you, do you use this in clinical practice a lot? That's a great question. So I believe these are pretty standard levels that definitely less than 200 goes along with um, really probably not taking it much at all. Um, and then the 1,000 is sort of the, the supposedly the goal range. Um, 
we, uh, to be honest, we actually use serum levels, <laughs> usually in clinic, and this is whole blood levels, which is actually important because there's different papers being published and they actually have very different cutoffs. So we use serum levels in clinic and the levels are actually much lower in serum levels. Yeah, so that's something that a lot of people don't really realize, but they're very different levels. Um, but we use them, you know, we sort of have a target range and um, mostly I send uh, nice, nice notes to people like, please take your hydroxychloroquine as much as you can when their levels are low. That's pretty much what we do with them. Great. So what did you uh, do in the study? Yeah. So, um, so we have this type one and two model where we have really divided lupus symptoms into um, those that, you know, we measure on the sleet eye and the things that doctors are trained to think of as active lupus, like arthritis, rash, kidney disease, that sort of thing. And then we have type two symptoms, which are more patient reported fatigue, myalgia, brain fog. So we have surveys um, by patients that measure the type two symptoms. We have um, physician measured um, levels uh, for the type one symptoms. And we broke our patients into several different groups. So we break them into patients who really just primarily have type one inflammation without feeling terribly bad. We have, um, which actually is a very small group. So I think actually fell out of, oh no, we have some of those, 11. Then we have patients who have um, really just active patient reported symptoms without inflammation. That's our type two group. We have a mixed group, which is people that really present with both. Like today I feel really crummy and I say, yeah, I see your joints are inflamed and your skin is bad and so on. And then we actually have quite a few patients in our clinic that we consider minimal activity, which is really both are pretty quite quiet. So we split everybody into the four groups, and then we looked at their hydroxychloroquine levels between those groups. One of the things that struck me is like 50% of them did not have therapeutic hydroxychloroquine levels. So are they not taking the medicine or, or it's getting metabolized? What's going on? Yeah, I'm not really sure. You know, I think there's a large group of patients who are in this kind of subtherapeutic level. Um, and to be honest, in whole blood levels, I, I'm not entirely comfortable that like a thousand has to be the cutoff. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that it's most clear to me like what's underexposed, right? Um, and under really very low, but the, the, the middle group is a little bit less clear. But I think what's what's most interesting on this is really table two. And that is, um, where we see um, sort of who has the lowest um, hydroxychloroquine levels based on their symptoms. And I think what's really fascinating is that we see that, um, you know, when we look particularly at it, you know, that our mixed group, our patients who feel bad and we say, yes, you look bad, um, have the lowest levels. And, um, and only 25% of those patients actually have a therapeutic level. Whereas you look at, you know, the minimal patients, so these are patients who feel great, and I think interestingly, our type two patients, the ones who also who feel terrible but have don't have inflamed lupus, really have no almost no um, non-adherence, right? So either it works and they feel good, or they're trying really hard to get better, um, but they just still feel bad. Um, and then there's sort of this middle group that has active sort of what we would all consider active type one lupus, and they're more likely not to be taking their hydroxychloroquine at the level we want. So I guess this, this helps us uh, make a case to uh, somehow increase adherence, uh, either through pill bottles, reminders. Um, I don't know. Is there some things that you've, you've yeah, recommend so, patients or physicians to do? I know. So adherence is really hard. We, we have uh, Kai Sun, who actually is the lead author on this work. Um, it, that's her, her work is actually figuring out it, how to tackle adherence. 
But I think that this paper actually might help in the sense that, you know, maybe these patients who have mixed symptoms, who really feel bad um, and are not taking their hydroxychloroquine, can, can we could help them see the connection. I think a lot of the problem with adherence in our lupus patients is that our medicines don't actually really make them feel better in an obvious way. Like it takes three months, right? Nobody associates like, oh, I've been doing this for three months. So I'm finally better today, right? That's like not something our brain puts together. And so I think that maybe by helping people understand like, oh no, see these people actually are taking it all the time and they feel better, right? I, I'm hoping that we can help patients really get internal motivation, like I wanna feel better and therefore I'm gonna take my medicine. I think what I take from this is that I'd start doing a little more hydroxychloroquine levels and patients that I'm iffy about, and that would help uh, uh, change hopefully patient perceptions and help uh, me counsel them. So thank you so much for your work and uh, and thank you for so much for joining us. Uh, for more, uh, more updates, please join Room Now uh, and uh, follow me on Twitter at Bella underscore Mehta. Thank you.